Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, I have an absolute legend on the podcast, Dr. Susan Kleiner. Dr. Susan Kleiner wrote Power Eating, and that was actually the first textbook, first nutrition book or manual that I actually ever read. I read it in college when I was 19 years old. She came and spoke at the college, got to meet her then. Um, She has now come out with her fifth edition of this book, which I will link in the show notes. Um, So she is a really, really well uh, read and written sports nutritionist. She has worked with pro athletes. She's worked with everyday people. She's done a lot of research in the female athlete and the female triad and really studying the female metabolism as well as male metabolism and even natural bodybuilders and how their metabolism work. She is also a co-founder of the ISSN, which is something I commonly recommend on this podcast for you to go look at studies. And you can go to jissn.com to to see their journal and really get access to all these research articles. But um, Susan is uh, unbelievably intelligent. She was a pleasure to have on the podcast. We had a great time chatting about all things nutrition, metabolism. Um, Then we dove into whole grains and why you shouldn't be demonizing whole grains and what to actually look for. So I think you're going to get a ton of value out of this podcast because we deep dived into some very, very specific topics that I get questions about all the time, like females under eating calories and what the the consequences of that may be. So we're going to deep dive into a lot of these topics. You guys are going to get a ton out of this, and I want you to do me a huge favor. If you enjoy this podcast, take a screenshot of it right now, head over to Instagram and tag us both. You can tag me at Cody.BoomBoom, and you can tag Susan at PowerEat, all one word. And without any further ado, Let's get on to the nutrition science with the one and only Dr. Susan Kleiner. All right. Today I have Dr. Susan Kleiner. Did I pronounce that right? Kleiner? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Because I hate when I butcher names. But um, I'm really excited to have you on because like we were talking about before the podcast, um, I bought your first edition of Power Eating when I was in college. When I was, I started that program when I was 18, which was 10 years ago. So it's, it was one of the first nutrition, it was actually the first nutrition book I actually bought and really like dug into and read. Um, and uh, it, maybe I was 19, it was nine or 10 years ago. And then um, I know you recently came out with a new one, which we're going to talk about as well, but you actually came and spoke at the school, which I got to see too. Um, so it was really cool that we got reconnected and I was able to have you on the podcast. So I'm excited about this. Um, so first and foremost, introduce yourself in a nutshell, um, kind of who you are and, and why you got into this in the first place. Oh, well, thanks. It's so great to be here. First of all, I think you probably had your first edition of Power Eating was probably the third edition. The first edition was published in 1997. Got it. uh, And we call it the Superman edition. That one was a white background with big blue and red letters. Uh, Now we are into, uh, and what you heard was the new Power Eating. It is essentially the fifth edition of Power Eating. So uh, a little bit of a legacy, something I'm very proud of. And and speaking of when and how I started, so I was a pre-Title IX girl in Cleveland, Ohio, and there were no sports, uh, and, except if you wanted to do field hockey. Um, that, was, that was the only varsity sport available. In fact, we had a gorgeous brand new uh, Olympic-sized swimming pool in my high school, and on the door it said, boys pool. So the girls could not swim in that pool. We had no opportunity to be in that pool. We could do swim timing for the boys swim team of which I did, but we couldn't swim. So my sport was dance. I was a modern dancer. I trained in New York City at at 15, 16 years old, uh, but then decided that the life I would have to lead there in those days uh, didn't really align with a sort of the, I think the ecosystem of my family, which is the way we think of ourselves. And so I came home and knew I had a curious mind and went to college. I went to a very small liberal arts college that was very research focused called Hiram College in Cleveland, uh, outside Cleveland. 
And uh, it was kind of funny, if you wanted to go to med school, it was considered that you were kind of a failure at research. So <laughs> um, I was interested in health and I thought I wanted to go to medical school and uh, went to an interview at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine with the, the um, late Dr. Uh, um, Horrigan, Dan Horrigan, who was the dad of a good friend of mine in high school. And he said, Susan, we'd love to have you in med school. Now this is 1979, okay? Um, we'd love to have you in med school. Uh, you won't learn anything that you're interested in. You're interested in health. We teach people how to treat disease. Go talk to the Department of Nutrition. And I thought, oh my God, I thought nutrition was just a hobby. And so off I went to the very first uh, program in the nation in public health nutrition at Case Western Reserve University. So they already had a history of 100 years. And, um, but I said, I want to study nutrition and exercise. And they said, there is no such thing. And I said, well, actually, I know that they're studying it in California and in New York, but I need to live at home uh, to be a grad student, to afford to go to grad school. And they said, well, you know, we're going to let you loose. You study the basics of nutrition and you teach us what you learn about nutrition and human performance. And so I got my master's, I got my, became a registered dietitian, worked the least amount of time necessary to be in a hospital to get registered, immediately came back for my PhD. And in between that time had started training with a female bodybuilder. And I was fascinated with what anyone could do. And those were the bad old days of, of, of old gyms that had, you know, maybe a few machines, but it was all free weights, all big dudes, everyone juiced up, even my teacher. And, um, and it was quite a, a subculture, a very silent subculture in those days. Arnold was just, you know, he was kind of just the be all and end all at that time. And, and I was just fascinated with the capacity of the human body to build muscle. And there was nothing in research on, on how you build muscle and strength. And so that became my research. And I did the very first study on the nu nutritional practices of competitive male bodybuilders, both um, taking steroids and um, steroid free. We had 35 subjects and today it's, it is the seminal research on examining um, the health, the cardiovascular risks, the association with steroids as well as diet and the impact on uh, body composition as well as cardiovascular disease risk. And, and it, it, it just, I just was fascinated with the whole thing. Now I never went on to compete but I worked with world champions, the, the research at that time, and then continued on. Um, uh, I got Mr. Mannion, let me come to the NPC National Physique Committee, Mr. and Miss USA competition and collect data in Raleigh, North Carolina, while I was on faculty at Duke and at University of North Carolina, Greensboro. So that was the heart and soul of my beginning. I was the only person really studying nutrition with a nutrition methodology background in, and looking at strength training and bodybuilding. And so strength and power sports became my bailiwick. And in those days, we had about a dozen sort of card carrying what became sports nutritionists. My degree was nutrition and human performance because the term sports nutrition didn't exist yet. And so, um, so we, at least when I began, not by the time I graduated with my doctorate. And so um, we would swap clients, you know, um, the, when Ellen Coleman got a bodybuilder and I had a triathlete or an Ironman, triath Ironman competitor, early days of Ironman, she'd have her client call me, I'd have my client call her. She was in Orange County. You know, when I had marathon runners, I was calling Nancy Clark when I was, you know, so, so we all knew each other and it was an amazing collegial sort of pioneering group. Um, now we're all kind of the godmothers, I think, of sports nutrition. And, and it, is, it is wonderful to see 
especially, you know, so many years went by, I have been an academic, I have been a, a scientific researcher, I have consulted with business and industry, I have been a business owner um, of, a, of start, two startups myself, neither of them went anywhere, but it was a very interesting experience. I'm an author and a speaker, um, and as much as I can communicate the and translate the science of food and supplements into um, enhancing uh, sport performance and helping people push out the walls of athletic challenge, that's what I love to do. I love it. I think, I mean, I mean, shit, I have to thank you because I think you really did pioneer a lot of what I do today, you know, as somebody who uh, coaches using science-based principles for really nutrition, right? Like that's exactly. Yeah. Um, we, one of the, one of the fun things I got to do that I think has really left its mark with four of my um, colleagues about, I think it's 17 years now is, uh, or maybe a little longer was found the international society of sport nutrition. Mm. And, and that came out of some frustration where the um, specialty practice group for sports and cardiovascular nutrition out of what was then the American Dietetic Association, you could only come to those meetings and be a member if you were a registered dietitian. Yet there was, at that time, it was the burgeoning of, person, of personal training and clearly there would never be enough registered dietitians to go around and touch everyone, but personal trainers were growing and growing and you were where the rubber meets the road as far as I was concerned. And so in order to raise the bar for personal trainers, for coaches, for industry to understand what is research and how do you make a better product for academics to meet the, the manufacturers, for students and athletes to meet everybody, I wanted one place where everyone could do that and that was the founding of the International Society of Sport Nutrition. So there are five of us who are co-founders and, and it is definitely a place where coaches and trainers belong. That's uh, actually really cool. I didn't realize that because I've had Jose Antonio on the podcast um, and I've actually stayed in touch with them uh, ever since then. We've talked and I'm getting planning on doing my CISSN here soon. Mm -hmm. as well. And the amount of times I've referred to JISSN, the journal on this podcast is insane because there's so much free access to so many good resources. Right. Um, so that's really cool that you're one of the founders. I did not know that. Yeah. That's really cool. So it was actually, if you ask Joey, Jose, he'll tell you it was my idea. And it was a, <laughs> it was a rant over dinner one night <laughs> where everyone laughed at me. And then three months later, he said, did you really mean that? I you said, know, yes, I mean that. <laughs> there's that saying, uh, like the best ideas are written on, on bar napkins or whatever, you know, and, and that's kind of that, right? Like when you're on these, and that's actually one of the things I love as kind of like a side tangent, going to seminars, going to things like those conferences and going to dinner with the other people attending later on and having mm -hmm. conversations with different trainers and nutritionists and people you've never met before is when I've had some of the, the most fun conversations, the most fun times and some of the best ideas that I've ever had. Yeah, it's a real coming together. I mean, it's um, at the time, as I said, um, it was dietitians who um, owned the territory over sports nutrition, yet exercise physiologists knew an awful lot. Maybe they couldn't speak in terms of food, and that was really the purview of the dietitian at the time, but they certainly understood the physiology and the demands and the biochemistry, and so to me, partnering teamwork is is the ideal situation the things they knew that we didn't know as well at that time today people have you know dual degrees or very in, and i really encourage that to get as educated as you can because this is really a specialty and so if you are a trainer who wants to know about nutrition then seek training don't just think that you can listen to a couple of podcasts and go out and take care of people because you really do impact their health and their life and, and their behavior. And, and many of these things, many of the negative things that happen are often associated with people who are wanting to help but are saying this was what worked for me so it must work for everybody. And yeah. that isn't the truth. Yeah, I think I, I've actually said something similar many times. I think a lot of young trainers and nutritionists do that at the beginning. Like I remember for me, 
I, I mean, years ago when I first, I tried intermittent fasting and it worked great for me because I trained at night, you know, I had school during the day, like it was perfect. And I was like, that's it. All my clients have to do intermittent fasting. And then very little of them succeeded. And I was like, okay, why is this not working? And it was exactly what you said. I was, was young and naive, to be honest with you. And I just, in my mind was like, I got really lean and felt great doing this. It must work for everybody, but that's never the case. It's highly right. individual. Right. So um, cool. I, uh, there's one thing I really wanted to ask you, which I think will be cool, especially after just giving us the context of your background, um, is, is essentially... I know you can't boil this down into a quick thing. So, I mean, feel free to elaborate. Maybe I can. <laughs> it might be hard to answer, but like what has changed since you've been here? I mean, you were talking about um, starting your degree in 79, I think you said. So you've had multiple decades in the nutrition space. What have you seen change? Like, is there anything groundbreaking that you've seen? Like, well, you know, my thoughts have really changed around this or, or some of the principles that you knew back then have stayed true this whole entire time. So when I began, um, we understood carbohydrate metabolism to the point, um, very similarly, I would say, sort of at, at, at when, where physicists understood Newtonian physics, right? We thought, we've got this down. We understand this exactly. We know what it takes to do high-level exercise, high-intensity exercise. You load up on carbs and you're good to go. Um, you know, we talked a little about protein, we talked a little about fat, then we got really scared of fat because of the Surgeon General's report and the Framingham study and our very early data on fat intake and the risk of cardiovascular disease. And we didn't know a lot of nuance about fat intake. And the population at large that was exercising was really kind of people who were afraid of cardiovascular disease. It wasn't so much, oh man, I am, I, I, I this fit like a fitness craze. It was, if I run, I can run away from cardiovascular disease. Like we weren't, we weren't obese yet. That wasn't a problem. Weight management was a, was a problem always for a fraction of the population. So anyway, the, the idea that high carb um, was good for you and a very lean diet, meaning very low fat was good for you. We had people, and I can't say necessarily me and dietitians, but kind of the global sense was carbs. It's all about carbs. And, and I don't want to talk about overweight, right? We're not talking about, we're talking about athletic performance. Mm -hmm. And um, things were kind of going along and people seemed to be doing okay. And then Barry Sears published The Zone Diet. And I can't tell you exactly when that was. Maybe, or I feel like maybe around 1990, somewhere around then. And, and people, and these people who were serious about their training and their diet and eating tons, like 80% carb diets, um, all of a sudden they started to feel way better. And this is more global. I'm not saying this is what I was prescribing, but this is the messaging that was heard. And it was not that far off of kind of how you would interpret what we were saying. And, and we looked at why does this diet make such a big difference? He's basically telling people to eat all the food groups just like we do. And what we recognized was that for people who were quote unquote, you know, very rigorous about following a sports nutrition diet plan, they had kind of eliminated protein. <laughs> They were eating very low protein levels, all, all kinds of athletes. And so they, the zone diet was the first acknowledged 40-30-30 plan. And so 40% carb, 30% protein, 30% fat, and people started to feel way better. And today we go, well, duh, of course they started to feel way better because they weren't eating enough protein, they weren't eating enough healthy fats. Um, Barry, unfortunately, ate, drank his own Kool-Aid, and instead of saying this is wonderful for performance and you probably will generally feel better, he started talking about how 
Um, it impacts the immune system and eicosanoids, which certainly more fat in the diet would do, more healthy fat, that it wouldn't, it wouldn't um, prevent cancer. It wouldn't, I mean, he got way off track. And so, so his book kind of got trashed because of that, but what we recognized in the sports nutrition field was that we had gotten astray in our messaging. And, and what people were hearing was just eat carbs. And so, so uh, every time that happens, we go back to the drawing board because we have to review what, not only what our research has really told us, what evidence we really have for the messages that we're giving out, and what they sound like to the people who are hearing them who don't have the filters that we have when we listen to information. And so, that was a, a pivotal moment, I think, in the, in the research and practice world. And, and so we went back to the drawing board. We started to look at protein again and the high value that protein offered and the messaging that says everyone in the U.S. gets plenty of protein. Well, actually, everyone wasn't, especially people who are really paying a lot of attention to a healthy diet. And so, so that changed. Um, then, then of course, the obesity ep epidemic came and, we, and, and the issues around fat. We learned a lot more nuance around fat. We learned a lot more nuance around carbohydrate. And we started to have some manufacturing with better products that we could actually use. We got scientists working with manufacturers. We got some evidence-based products. We could learn how to focus carbohydrates for performance around performance as pre, during, and post supplementation and get people not eating so much sugar all day long so they could just get in the carbs easily and not be so full, but really focusing on whole foods. And that kind of brought us up to, you know, yes, we've got this keto thing going on again, and that's all diet fad um, impacting the, the sports nutrition world. Um, but, but I think the the recognition is every time that there's this huge um, baseball bat taken to scientific messaging, it forces the scientists to go back and evaluate whether they've got the data that they need. And often we learn more. And so we understand more about fueling than we ever did before and the role of fats and how fats work. Um, it has made us, the fueling question has forced the issue in the female athletic world. That is a, that is a, a pivotal shift. When, when fueling started to become such a question, it, it forced scientists to evaluate female metabolism separate from male. We had to explain better what was happening with elite distance female athletes who were eating a fraction of the fuel that we thought they needed and could still be world-class athletes. Well, that meant that the way we utilize fuel in the body couldn't be the way we had assumed we utilized it all along. And in fact, it was, we had it basically ass backwards. And so, so in doing that, now we know more about fueling the female athlete and what underfueling means and low energy availability, a totally new term versus just figuring out calorie balance. Uh, we don't even use that anymore. That's a dated old terminology, energy balance. Um, and so we, you know, those have been, I think I kind of see history in those big chunks. But where we are today, unfortunately, is, and I know you'll get to this, kind of this, all of this research into the deep understanding of the details of nutrition, metabolism, and sports performance has led us to a reductionist view of food, where all we see food as is a source of macronutrients. And so the concept of getting your macros and being able to throw out whole food groups out of hand because you can get your carbs somewhere else or you can get your protein somewhere else and and not seeing food for the holistic contribution that it makes to the diet and to your body um, 
is, is an unhealthy place to be. So that's kind of brings us up to the very present and my current view and the things that I talk about today. Yeah, I think uh, I would 100% agree. I think that uh, when IIFYM, if it fits your macros, kind of hit the scene, it was the the need for micronutrient-dense foods just kind of went out the window and everybody was just focused on macros. And yes, calorie intake can change your body composition, but is that all you're after? And is that sustainable, right? Is that is that healthy? And I think that's where we really try to push the message of like, let's track the numbers so we can actually get you in the right direction, but let's make sure we're actually focusing on health and hormones and everything right. like that as well. Um, I am curious, you mentioned uh, male versus female metabolisms. Did you, what research have you come across that like shows a difference and what is that difference? Um, I know we get a lot of uh, women coaches and clients listening to the podcast who kind of fall into that category where they're under fueling and sometimes I see they get, they, they are getting great results at first, but eventually they, will. they burn out. Right. And I think that adaptation takes place and it's, and it's a, they, it's a little too little too late kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm curious of what you found with that and what that difference actually is. So we have well over a decade of research on um, female energy needs. Um, it's starting, of course, with looking at the female athlete triad uh, and the results of dramatic underfueling and the question of, could you head it off at the pass? What could you predict in looking at energy consumption and what biomarkers could you look at, clinical markers, that might give you an indication that things were about to break down. And so um, research was done looking at what are the actual energy demands on the female body. So just to start with, you know, there's, there's sort of functional differences and then there's what research do we have so the functional differences are we know that at low to moderate intensities of exercise women or females uh, adult females not so much girls uh, so women in their reproductive years are better fat burners than men um, in, in meaning that sort of that endurance pace that is at a moderate that is under about 72 percent vo2 max which is when we start to see more high intensity uh, energy demand and under that uh, women can women will access the um, triglyceride droplets around their their muscle cells which is where they're stored around the muscle fibers uh, more readily than a male will it's not the fat on your belly <laughs> it's the fat actually we you know intramuscular lipids right that are and so women store those more readily we recover them more quickly and we utilize them um in a more sustained fashion in this sort of moderate to moderately high intensity exercise so it makes us really good endurance athletes. We can access those fats better and we store them faster. We recover them faster. Um, men will use more carb. So men, their carb burn rate will be higher typically. And of course, there's always gonna be a bell curve, right? I mean, every person isn't the same. And I have had clients that I've done studies on, females who burn carbs like a man does, right? I mean, so we've got, you know, more, like a more typical male will. And so, so we've got a range, but in general, um, the carb burn rate of a woman at moderately high intensity exercise, so she's out running that endurance exercise, right? Um, she's burning more fat than carb for her fuel. Um, at high intensity levels of exercise, men and women burn fuel identically. So, so once you're at high intensity, HIIT training, anything like that, male and female physiology is the same. Um, then there's the data on, on um, sort of energy burn selection. So what we used to think was that in, people who did high levels of exercise, 
we would determine their foundational energy needs for sort of their, you know, look at their basal metabolic rate or their resting metabolic rate, determine their needs for, for health, their energy needs for health, separate from their training exercise, um, that that energy that you consumed would be secured by the body to support those health needs. And then everything that was left over would be utilized for your high exercise burn. So you couldn't sustain high intensity exercise for a long period of time if you were under fueling, you would run out of gas. And so that was the conundrum with these female athletes. They ate very little, yet they could be world-class athletes. That just didn't ring true to the paradigm that we had come up with until we actually did the measures and the body will fuel the high energy demand first. And everything that's left over goes to the sort of what we say non-essential foundational health needs, which is why underfueling causes you to lose your reproductive cycle right away. Mm -hmm. um, it, bone mineral health goes down the tubes, immune function wanes, uh, you know, brain fog, inability to sleep and rest, nervous system gets all upside down, your hair, your skin, all of that starts to look bad. And particularly, you're not going to gain muscle, right? I mean, your, your, your training goes down the tubes. Yet, what happens when you begin a protocol like that? Well, if you're in any kind of sport that depends on a power to weight ratio, you've still got your power. You don't melt away immediately. So your body is used to pushing against a certain weight. You now have dropped probably around, usually average will be about 10 pounds, right? People will drop eight to 10 pounds. And now their, their performance is amazing because with the same power that they always had, now remember, they're fueling their high-intensity exercise primarily. They still have all that energy to fuel that training, and they're pushing around 8 to 10 pounds less weight. So their first competitive season like that is unbelievable. They, they ramp up. You know, road cyclists are, are famous for reporting amazing leaps in performance, certainly certainly any kind of, of endurance or, or any kind of you know, um, wrestlers, when that power to weight ratio raises the power so distinctly over the weight, you get amazing initial performance and that can last for a whole season. And then it's the next season that it doesn't work quite as well. And you go, oh, maybe I'm not restricting enough. And so now you restrict even more because the last time you restricted, you got this amazing performance. So now you restrict more. Now you start to get some deficits, things that start to not go right. And what really happens with underfueling and undercarbing in, in particular also, is your rate of perceived exertion goes up. So you feel, if you're not doing anything, that, so this is more general population, if you're not measuring something, your output, your watt output, your lifts, something that gives you a measure of actual performance or performance how, how what your gains are over time your rate of perceived exertion tells you you are working out as hard as you always have been but your watt output your energy output does go down so when you may think i'm at out of it on a scale of one to ten ten being you know puke or pass out one being sitting on the couch when you you would perceive you're at a nine or a 10, but you're actually a watt output of a five or a six. And so you're, you plateau, you're not going anywhere. And then over time, the more you restrict, the worse it gets. People coming into my office, I'm training harder, I'm training longer, I'm getting softer, I have brain fog, I'm not sleeping, I'm restricting more, my diet is perfect. And I always say, and here you are, like, why are you here if your diet's perfect? So, so, so these indicators, 
So what have we learned about the female athlete? And I know you said you probably can't say this in a nutshell. And so, well, this was, I did a little bit at the beginning. <laughs> so, so the thing about the female athlete is we have now got clinical measurements. We know that when you look at um, uh, calories per kilogram of fat-free mass, not lean body mass, which is different, calories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day, that if you are consuming less than 30 calories per kilogram of fat-free mass per day, a female athlete, or a female, any female, well, an active female, you have to be pretty active, will show deficits in reproductive hormone production. We can measure it. We know it is the beginning of the slide into the female athlete triad. So we can start to predict that reproductive function is going to start to wane. So losing your period is not something to celebrate. It's a sign that a host of things are starting to break in your body. And so um, we can measure this. You know, of course, we have to know dietary intake. We have to know fat-free mass. And so once you have that, if, and, and I can tell you many, 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 most female athletes come in needing an extra thousand calories a day, just to get to 30 to 35 calories per kilogram fat-free mass per day. So ultimately, we'd love them to be at 45. Now, these numbers are specific to a decade of research on female subjects. The International Olympic Committee has, has taken this concept and said, we know that this applies to men, that theoretically this is going on in men too who restrict, I certainly had a, a hypothyroid um, male bodybuilder more than once in my office from carbohydrate, severe carbohydrate restriction. I've, you know, we've seen divers, we've seen all kinds of male athletes who do restrict like this, who probably have similar kinds of, of metabolic changes and physiologic outcomes, but we don't have, the data that's on women is particular to women. And so, um, uh, uh, Red S is something that a lot of people probably read about. You, we've got pictures and diagrams and everything of how it impacts hormones and, and all kinds of performance outcomes. But the numbers that we actually use clinically don't transfer as far as we know. We don't have data to say yes or no. I think that's really helpful because there's so many people um, even that we take in as clients that are under eating before we start. And usually they are women. Um, it was also cool to hear what you were mentioning about triglycerides and the fat. And, and I think that it's funny because I, I get the question, not too often, but I'll get the question of like, what's the minimum amount of fat an athlete or somebody trying to change their body composition needs to intake. And I, I always say it depends. It's very individual, but I tend to lean on a higher number for women in most cases. And in my experience, women can't go nearly as low as men can and still feel okay. But then as you kept going, I started thinking too, is part of this might be, I know we don't have the research on men, but part of this might be, we don't have as much signals to let us know that something's going wrong, right? Uh, you guys have a really big one. When you lose the menstrual cycle, obviously something is not going right. Um, and even to add to that, like men don't typically pay attention to if their nails get brittle or crack their if their skin's drier or if their hair is starting to you know get drier or have split ends right. we don't care about that um but those are also signs if if something metabolically is going wrong so i think um really good points i love what you went to and i'm glad you didn't just give me a quick short answer on that because i think that was super practical and applicable to the audience um because i want to like use my time with you as valuably as possible um i do want to get into wheat because you have a stance on wheat and and i've really enjoyed uh, seeing that and, and knowing that you're going out and talking about that. Cause I think we went through a period of time. I mean, there was, I even remember buying the book just to read it just cause I, I'm one of those people that if, if there's a fad or if there's something going on, I'm going to look into it and read about it. Sure. And I want to say it was called wheat brain or something like that. And brain, 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 brain. That's what it or was. Or there's wheat belly. Or brain, brain. Wheat belly. I ha actually have wheat belly as well. Um, but essentially it's, it's a lot of these things saying that like grains are bad for us. And, um, if I'm not mistaken, you're kind of taking a stand against that, correct? Yeah. So what, what I say is it's not the grain's fault, right? It, <laughs> it, 
it's it's what we have done to it. And so I, I just want to I just want to step back just a tiny bit and say, in men, a very low fat diet will affect testosterone production. And so um, certainly you will see uh, decrements in performance and libido and in in if you're trying for gains. Uh, you'll get that. So on both sides, men and women, it is often misinterpreted initially as overtraining syndrome. I call it underfueling syndrome. However, ultimately, you will go into overtraining syndrome. You know, you. But 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 check if you're starting to see plateaus. You think that things are just not right. Get to somebody who is a specialist in sports nutrition, who isn't just following the latest fad because. Restricted dieting is a is a big deal, and sometimes we use it as a tool in our toolbox. Right, um, the whole concept of 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 periodized nutrition is something. If you go back to the original 1997 power eating, that's where it is. That's where it starts. And I was working with the 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 man who started um, periodized training uh, in strength training, and so. If you, you know, we, we use lots of tricks throughout a season, but restricting um, isn't something you want to do all the time. So yeah, it, it's a cyclical thing. That's what I always yeah. say. Yeah. So um, wheat. So here's the thing. Think of grains as a fresh food, just like we think of our vegetables, just like we think of you want to see the face of the cow that you're eating the steak from, just like um, we want to make sure that our butter is as fresh as it can be or our milk is as fresh. You know, all think of all fresh ingredients. Think of grains in that category too. Yet, most people don't access fresh grains, fresh, harvested, local, wholesome grains. What's happened to our food supply is that in general in the US, we think of grains only as an ultra processed food. Breads and cereal and pasta, those are pretty ultra processed foods if you're buying commercially you know, prepared products. And so you know, I'm gonna work from the farmer forward so our, our farmers are growing monoculture wheat. That wheat was ultimately bred for transportation and yield. And, and, you know, and that it's all a consistent homogenous color and easy on the machinery to make flour. It has nothing to do with nutritional value or taste. Just just to start with. So we've bred that all-purpose flour has no purpose at all, right? I mean, so, so, so just to start with. The second thing is that those folks who are trying very hard and are buying 100% whole wheat something, anything, whether from flour to a baked product, unless that flour is stone ground, that flour, now hold on to your seats, everybody. <laughs> it's, it, it is made into 100% all white flour, and then the fiber is added back. So steel roller mills don't stop and then make, bring in whole wheat flour. They are making all the flour white, and then the US government says you can call this 100% whole wheat flour as long as you add back at least 50% of the bran that you took out and they're supposed to add back other components from the germ which would have healthy fats and other nutrients but I have not for decades had a bag of whole of commercially made whole wheat flour go rancid on my shelf. When I was a kid, it did. And that's because it still had fat in it. But it doesn't have any fat in it. It's like the tuna fish in the can that has only one gram of fat per serving. If you're eating tuna, it's got seven grams of fat per serving. They're taking the 
the, the healthy fish oils out and either dumping it overboard or putting it in a fish oil supplement. You have to buy boutique canned tuna to get healthy tuna. So go to tunatuna.com, my friends who have the most wonderful tuna. But anyway, <laughs> and they're here from here in Seattle. Oh, I love it. Um, so, but that, so that's what they're doing. So you've got white flour where they're thrown back in a pittance of what was originally in the flour, and they're allowed to call that 100% whole wheat flour. So just let that sink in for a minute and know that even when you think you're doing everything you possibly can to get all this wholesome good bread, it's not. Then in order to commercially make bread, that the time that it takes to make bread has to be pretty fast in a commercial establishment making our loaves of double plastic wrapped bread in the grocery store. They put in tons of extra yeast that's not in a naturally raised loaf. They add tons of enzymes. They add all kinds of things in there and they add extra gluten, by the way, just to get it to make that loaf in a couple of hours from start to finish. And so it is not a surprise that those loaves are making people uncomfortable in their gut. Because a loaf that I make at home and that we're talking about that you don't have to make at home but you can find in almost every city in the country is a loaf made from stone ground flour in fact, from here in Seattle, we can go to the mill in up in northern um, Washington. We can get our own flour. You can order it online. Amazon sells some of these flours. There's websites to go to to find stone ground, wholesome flour that will be mostly whole grain. Um, even if you get white flour from them, it still is more wholesome than, uh, and, and it's fresh because we want fresh ingredients because when they're old and they're months and months old on the shelf, things have been added to keep them that way, but they don't have to put it on the label. So um, fresh flour that uses a sourdough technique or a long, slow fermented rise. Everyone's heard about cultured foods and fermenting and how good that is, that process is for your gut. It's the same in bread. Bread would never have been called the staff of life if it hadn't been really good for you. And so folks who are experiencing discomfort and say it's from the gluten, it may not be from the gluten or it may be, but it may be from the process that that grain is put through from start to finish. Um, and, and so if you can access fresh flour or an artisanal bakery, ask them all their loaves won't be made this way typically because it's just too expensive but they will have one or two or a handful of loaves made using the slow fermentation process sourdough technique we call it that doesn't mean san francisco sourdough bread it's actually a, the technique of using wild yeast and a starter to to slowly ferment and rise your bread over you know either an eight-hour period over the day or a 12-hour period overnight. Um, so it's, it's the wholesome ingredients. And then you don't have to eat bread or pasta if you don't want to. Eat the whole grain. And here's why. Because in study after study after study, and in the most recent study looking at disease around the world, and then country, 29 different countries. In the United States, the number one dietary reason for chronic disease is lack of whole grains. Not too much sugar, which is there, not too much salt, which is certainly, you know, number two and number three, but number one is lack of whole grains because the whole grain actually brings in a unique fibers that we call prebiotics. They feed the, the, the probiotics, they feed the cultures, the important yeasts and bacteria of our gut biome, the, the biota, the living things in our gut, they need food too. And the, the fiber from whole grains is unique to feeding these cultures 
And these fibers also help those cultures create a mucosal lining around your gut to decrease inflammatory processes. And then when we eat breads that are slowly fermented to rise, that process itself, it, it diminishes some anti-nutrients that are in wheat that you read about and say it's so bad because you, you're not gonna absorb all the, all the iron and the, and the minerals from grains because there's all these anti-nutrients in wheat. Well, when you ferment them, that goes away and many enzymes are developed that are highly anti-inflammatory. And so whole grains are potent anti-inflammatories. They decrease inflammation in the gut and thus in the whole body. And so to understand that by eliminating whole grains out of hand, you are eliminating some of the most potent anti-inflammatory foods. We don't need to be looking for you know, very special berries. Eat whole grains and you can eat the whole grain. You can buy spelt, you can buy wheat berries, you can buy, you know, you can eat gluten-free whole grains if you want. Um, you know, of course, quinoa, amaranth is actually a seed. Quinoa is actually a seed, but we, they're in the whole grain category. Find gluten-free whole grains if you need that. Um, I am right now in the midst of raising 90% uh, spelt bread upstairs in my kitchen. <laughs> and that is a low-gluten bread that is really bread. And it's very nutty and very tasty, and it is an absolute whole grain. And by mistake, instead of spelt flour, I got whole spelt, and I have cooked that. That's delicious. You cook all this stuff just like brown rice, which, by the way, is a whole grain. It's that easy. So there's brown and red and, and purple and black rice. There's um, uh, farro, uh, icorn, those are the ancient grains. They're all available easily online, or as I said, in many sort of more natural health food stores, you can find a smattering of these. I love that, because I think this just kind of doubles down on the idea of it's more than just calories, right? It's more than just macros. Like you really do have to pay attention to what that intake is filled up with. Um, and I know a lot of people when like the whole gluten-free craze came around and, you know, I lost 30 pounds of gluten-free uh, diet. What else did you cut out? Because right. you donuts. Know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's usually a correlation with the type of, or like what's along with it, all the trans fat and the fast food and things like that. So um, that's super practical. Do, do you have like a, for people who are like, okay, cool. I can, I can eat bread now. Like, thank God. And they're going to go to the store. Or do you just tell them to look for, just look for local whole grain? Like, and, and if you do that, you're probably safe. So, so a bread made with stone ground flour will say so in the ingredients. Like they're going to make a big deal out of it. If you go to, um, like I said, your, your local, if you have an artisanal bakery, ask them, what flour do you use? What percent of this bread is whole grain? Where do you get your flour from? Do you use a slow fermented rise or a sourdough technique? Many bakeries will add a very small amount of yeast, a gram or two grams. It speeds up the process very slightly. It makes a little more commercially successful product, a little higher rise, a little prettier. And so that's fine. Um, there's nothing negative in that. They're doing, they're still doing a slow fermented rise. Um, uh, Great Harvest Bakery is a national chain uh, franchise and they grind their own wheat there. Uh, so that's a good one to look up and follow. Um, I would say, you know, go online locally and look. The stuff that's produced that looks pretty, that's your sort of, you know, your local grocery store bakery bread that looks very white on the inside is unlikely to do this. They're still making a commercial bread probably a pretty commercial process. Um, they, there are ways to make it look like an artisanal bread, but it isn't a slow process. It's slower than, you know, Wonder Bread, but it's, it's not as slow as, as kind of what I'm talking about. And so 
so look it up. I actually can send you, I, I have to be honest, I am so bad with social media and my website, but I will put some, I need to put some resources up on, on, um, on my social media, which is at Power Eat is uh, um, uh, my Instagram and Dr. Susan Kleiner is my Facebook page. Uh, and I will, I've done it before, I'll, I'll put it up again and I can send you some to put, you know, we can share that so your listeners can hear. It's just really important. I mean, there are nutrients in grains where grains are the most abundant resource. Your B vitamins. Everyone's always looking, do I need to supplement? How much do I need to take? Oh my God, I, I don't get B vitamins. You know, eat whole grains. Um, you know, I'm not an anti-supplement person. I definitely use supplements, but I would like people to get as much as they can from food because those are going to be most well and efficiently used by the body. Especially when it comes to things like vitamins and minerals like that, right? Versus, I know you're a fan of, of intra-workout carbohydrates, obviously, because of your, your product, Retargo. Um, but I think, you know, creatine, intra-workout carbs, things like that, I get. Um, but I agree, you should try to cover your bases with food first. I think that's always a safe bet. Absolutely. And, and as I said, there are times when we're using all our tools in our toolkit. And so um, I did a, a talk, uh, it was kind of like a TEDx talk, the Hilliard discussion down at um, Texas A&M University a couple of years ago and talked about, um, you know, it, it's well known that I've worked with Sue Bird for a number of years and uh, during their, the Storms Championship run uh, in 2018, she also needed to get ripped for the ESPN body shoot at the same time. And those are mutually exclusive diets. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how did we do that? And I talk about it in, in that um, video and it is posted on social media. Um, and so I, or go to the Hilliard discussion, um, but it is, it is saying, well, let's, let's utilize our knowledge about when we remove some carbs from the diet and, and what effect that does. We acknowledge this is, this is when science is pushed, we need, to, we need to rectify misinformation coming from our own you know, mouths. And so that was what happened as the low carb diet craze kind of crept up on us. So we can utilize that and understand how to use it best and then put the carbs with Vitargo, it's putting the starch around your training so that you can fully fuel your training and feels empty enough to train. You know you're burning it, you know your burn rate during training and what it takes to recover for your next bout, and it's not going into storage. It, in, on your body, it's going into storage in your muscles, and they have all that data. It's a proven product, and so we could use that and then cut out some of the starchy foods the rest of the day, and that was pretty amazing because it, when we think about energy balance, when you do talk about balance throughout the day, peaks and valleys in your deficits and, 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 and getting you know, ramped up to go into exercise, energy balance, your, your body responds moment to moment all day long. It's not a one-time deal. Like it doesn't check in at the end of the day and see where you are. And so you can you can put that to work for you. And I say, put your carbs to work for you. Um, and that's how we sculpt the body. I love it. Yeah, that's so important. I think it's, it's one of those things where uh, I, I've found uh, with Vitargo and a couple other products, um, I use them even my, my bodybuilding show to try to keep some strength because it was like, oh, yeah. I, I have to cut carbs at, at some point just because I'm reducing calories. I'm trying to get lean. Right. Here. Um, but being able to keep that in or in during and right after the workout actually helped me maintain more muscle, maintain more performance while doing that. And I've used that as a tactic many times. So I love that you um, brought that up and that you can actually talk about the science with it, which brings me to my last uh, question for you is just kind of, um, I'm going to link it in the show notes so people can grab it if they're interested, but your new, uh, the fifth edition, you said of power eating, um, what's inside? Like if you can just break down maybe the table contents or kind of let people know what they're in for if they grab a copy. That's funny. Here it is <laughs> with Perfect. all my little notes in it too, my little tabs. <laughs> so that, that's the that book. For the tabs that for your sixth edition. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So what's cool in this one, first of all, is the cover. I have argued with human kinetics for the last two editions to put a woman on the cover. And this time I said I wouldn't write it if we didn't have a woman on the cover. <laughs> and so I'm thrilled that uh, we have a female on the cover along with a male. And they're, I know they're doing a proper lift, which was very important to me. <laughs> the form was yeah. good. Um, so in this book, the difference, so it is focused on strength and power. However, because today it's not just athletes that ha are in strength and power sports, but it's all athletes who, who strength train. Mm -hmm. um, there is, so the, the information is there to support your sport as well as if your sport is a strength or power sport. So it's the science behind what we understand it for both mental and physical performance. It's behavioral strategies. It's also diet plans. And so the periodized diet plans, starting with, are you just trying to maintain? Are you on an off season or are you in your season and you're trying to maintain? So many athletes drop weight in season in, in um, team sports. So, so it's, there's a maintenance plan, a building plan, uh, a cross training plan and that's the plan mostly for athletes who are in competitive sports team sports or whatever they do whatever kind of competitive whatever sport they do that lifting is part of their training protocol but their actual strength is not part of their sport um, you know swimmers or you know cyclists or anybody or soccer players it can it can go all the way across the board then um, certainly a losing fat and a, and a more cutting uh, uh, plan. So the cutting plan being really the two-week plan, getting ready to go on stage, or I used to laugh uh, in the old days and say, or trying to get into that bikini or red dress to go on your cruise, but nobody's going on cruises now, so it's <laughs> you know, to walk around in your house. Yeah. <laughs> so. So um, the cutting phase is is very brief. It, that is under fueling, and a and a well trained, well fed athlete can do that for two weeks and be fine, uh, not lose power, strength, data are real clear. Uh, but then you need to stop, and so so that's that's the two week plan um, there. Um, and and I've got. You know, as I said, several chapters on the brain, um, several chapters for the female athlete, and then woven through the whole book really is um, macros, micros, um, a lot on uh, uh, plant foods and uh, botanicals, botanicals for the brain, all of that because sort of the neurobiology of, the, of food and its impact on the brain has been a part of my work for two decades. And um, starting around 1999, I, I started working on uh, food and mood and the way uh, food impacts uh, mental energy, mental focus, uh, cognitive performance, rest, relaxation, recovery, all of that. And I even wrote a book called The Good Mood Diet. Um, and that was really, uh, my clients were saying, will you write a book for my mom or my husband or my partner or my sister or somebody who's not an athlete, but needs to learn what you're teaching me. And so this was more about how you feel than about physical performance. And so uh, my athletes have always called it power eating light because <laughs> the principles are, are the same. It's just a different story. Yeah. I love it. That's perfect. I think uh, for all the people listening, we'll put some links in the show notes so they can grab it. I highly recommend it, obviously, because uh, I have read previous ones, and I'm going to grab this one to read that as well. Um, for, for those listening, so I can link them and they can click on it, can you drop us like uh, Instagram, website one more time, stuff like that, so they can check out your content and access the book? Sure. So website is drskleiner.com, D-R-S. K-L-E-I-N-E-R.com, uh, at Power Eat, Instagram and Twitter, and Dr. Susan Kleiner, D-R, Susan Kleiner on Facebook. 
perfect. I'll link all those in the show notes. Once again, guys, I highly recommend you check those out. Um, she's been in the game for a long time and she's been somebody that's educated me since I literally started this uh, career. So it's really, really cool to have you on the podcast. Thank you uh, for your time and thank you for dropping knowledge with us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. This is a ball. I love doing this. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.